This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this podcast, Debbie talks to design critic Alice Rosthorn about the growing status of design. People are taking design much more seriously and they're readier to see it as an agent of change. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Design is an ever-changing, amorphous entity. In recent decades, designers have been moving beyond a strictly commercial role into social, political, and environmental ventures. Alice Roththorne has been there to chronicle and to champion the growth of the field. She's been a foreign correspondent for the Financial Times and a design columnist in the New York Times, where she kept a close eye on how the world has changed design and how designers have changed the world. Her latest book is titled Design as an Attitude. She joins me to talk about it and her career as a preeminent design critic. Alice Rothsorn, welcome to Design Matters. <laughs> Hello, Debbie. Alice, I understand that when you were a teenager, you spent your lunch breaks at school practicing dance steps to British soul music 
in the cloakroom. Any particular favorite tunes? Uh, well, it wasn't actually British soul music. It was Northern soul music. Um, oh. I'm from Northern England, and Northern soul was a huge phenomenon in the 70s. So when, on the rare occasions, we went to clubs, most of the time it was like a sort of village hall disco, um, we would do Northern soul dancing. And so it was all American music that, and some Jamaican that was imported into Britain. And what kind of dancing? Um, well, it's sort of formation dancing, super athletic. It's all about sort of stamina on the dance floor. So dancing for hours on end. There'd be Northern Soul all-nighters, which are now notorious. I mean, now it's incredibly chic in British pop culture. But at the time, it was just something that working class kids in Northern England did. Now, you were born in Manchester, is that correct? I was. And your father was a mechanical engineer who owned his own companies? Uh, no, he ran companies for other people. Oh, he ran companies yeah. for other people. Okay, well, you said that he directly influenced your love of design. Well, actually, both my parents did. My mom was a teacher. She was an art teacher. And dad was incredibly practical. You know, he could do electronics, install central heating. He built their first car from bits of scrap. So just one of those naturally ingenious, resourceful, super pragmatic people. And mom came from a working class family who had very little money, super creative, made everything. So she loved gardening, sewing. She was constantly making stuff to sell at craft fairs. Sort of, I grew up with this notion that making things was a natural, sensible thing to do. And also, instinctively, I think I learned to sort of pay attention about how things slotted into your life, how you felt about them. And mum was a brilliant teacher. I mean, it's a tragedy she gave it up to bring up her own children because so many other kids could have benefited from her. So if we were, say, walking the dog, she'd pick up a leaf and say, what colour is this? And my brother and I would say, green. You know, all leaves are green. She'd say, no, look more carefully and point out all the colours. So just by doing little things like that, she really made us look at things and made us very confident in our visual judgments, which certainly in the British education system was very unusual. I read that she gave you absolute confidence in your visual judgment. I think she taught me how to trust my instincts visually and not to feel guilty in the way that most British intellectuals do about reveling in the visual. I mean, an artist friend, David Batchelor, always says the British are never taught how to look. And it's absolutely true. And so without my mum, I would have been a much more typical super academic British kid who may have had little or no interest in the visual aspects of, of life. When I read that quote about your mom, I was wondering how she was able to instill that absolute confidence because so few people really have that surety at, at being really clear about what they see or are capable of doing. I'm not sure I really saw it or see it as confidence. It was more, I mean, certainty in a weird way is a better word, though that sounds ridiculous because you should never be certain about anything. It would be a very boring way to live. 
I think it's just that she really opened me up to the sensual pleasure of the visual and also other sort of haptic aspects of, of life and didn't make me feel guilty about it. I never felt it was a waste of time or that it was silly and superficial. And that was very much the prevailing attitude in Britain at the time. So for me as a teenager, that translated into an obsessive interest in pop and style culture. So I was obsessed by music, different styles of dancing, clothes, and so on. And so I think that was how I expressed it, rather than painting, drawing, sculpting, none of which I could do. When you were growing up, I understand that you adored the book Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, and the character Joe in particular resonated with you. What did you love most about her? Why Joe? Um, well, actually, I think all my friends loved Little Women and Joe. It didn't make me unusual, but Joe was a tomboy, first of all, as was I. She was intelligent and was confident in marshalling her intelligence. She was a strong, powerful, confident, obdurate in a positive way female character in an era where there were so few. And so as a role model, she was much more appealing than slightly insipid, overly domesticated Meg, sulky, spoiled Amy, and of course, poor Beth, who died. Fashion-wise, today you describe yourself as a sporty mod and have been known to study and buy pieces from Fashion Week. Given your keen sense of style, and you look magnificent today, I think some people would be surprised to learn that you yourself were a tomboy. Although I do understand that you were quite particular about the jeans and T-shirts that you would wear as that young tomboy. What did you favor? Well, I was very particular about jeans and T-shirts and also so skinny that they would just sort of fall off me or be oh, poor um, you. far too short. <laughs> but um, I think actually I don't think it should be surprising because I think being a tomboy is very much about personal identity and that's really what an obsessive interest in clothes is all about. Whether it's communicating your mood, your gender politics, your gender preferences, whatever, any other aspect of your personal identity, clothes have always been a critically important way of doing that and also a hugely enjoyable one. And so I was in my late teens and early 20s, so at university in the punk era. And in those days, suddenly in Britain, you couldn't buy really cool clothes. They just sort of didn't exist. So you would have to make or customize your own. So we'd go to what we call jumble sales. I think they're yard sales in the States or thrift shops and buy, you know, raggedy mohair sweaters and make them even more raggedy and so on. So I mean, I still am, absurdly for my age, ridiculously still obsessively interested in fashion. And it's something that gives me huge enjoyment. You know, I wouldn't, just as I wouldn't ever eat anything that I didn't think I was going to enjoy. I never wear anything that didn't feel right. So for me, it's all part of a particular outlook on life. While you were growing up, your family was constantly moving and you attended, I believe, six schools. Yeah. Why were you on the move so often and what kind of impact did that have on you? Well, my dad, um, he was constantly getting jobs to run ever larger engineering companies. So it was really his career and his ambition. So I think every four years in my childhood, we'd move 200 miles, which I don't think is much of a distance in the States. But, you know, that's halfway up the, the country in Great Britain. And so, you know, you'd arrive in a new playground. You wouldn't know anyone all over again. You'd have to make friends and sort of establish yourself from 
scratch. Um, so I think it made me quite a socially confident person because I knew from a very early age that I could do that. So I never had a terror of sort of leaving and rebuilding and reinventing simply because I'd had to do it so often. And it also meant that I was exposed to lots of different cultures, different accents, different language, different dance steps, different takes on music and fashion, all the things that teenagers in particular really care about in different parts of the country. So I think it was probably that that gave me yet another obsessive interest in coding of different types, whether it's visual codes, behavioural codes, because if you arrive as the new kid in the playground, you've got to learn them pretty quickly if you're going to make friends. I read an interesting quote that I wanted to ask you about. You said that if you ever feel glum about aging, you watch the television show Girls and remember how horrid it was to be a young woman. And I was wondering what was particularly horrid. Was it just a sort of usual teenage angst or something more specific? Oh, I think politically. I mean, I was a girl in the 60s. I was a teenager in the 70s and a young professional woman in the 80s. Now, thankfully, time's up. But it was horrible being a young woman. I think we're probably very close to the same age because those are the same decades that I went through at those ages. You know, there were very few role models for you. You saw very few adult women whose lives you thought were bearable. You were patronized and marginalized constantly. It was horribly unpleasant. I mean, particularly if you were ambitious and really wanted sort of achieve, to achieve something in your life and lead a worthwhile life, you had very little evidence that that was going to be possible. So, I mean, I was lucky, as were you, in that we grew up in a generation where sort of first and second wave feminists had really blazed a trail, smashed through the glass ceiling and so on. So we did have opportunities, but you really felt you had to struggle for them. I mean, for example, I went to Cambridge University, which is the elite university in Britain, only 10% of my year were women because there were so few places for women there and what had traditionally for centuries been all-male colleges. And so, in a way, it's great training for adult life because you knew you could never make a mistake. You know, you would never be forgiven for errors that a comparable man could make. And you knew you would have to work really, really hard and strive in order to achieve what you wanted. And you get used to struggling. Yeah, exactly. And also not complaining about it because that was pointless too. That said, I think it's way more fun being a woman. So I'm very happy. I agree. Absolutely. When did you start writing and what kind of writing did you first do? Um, I always loved reading and writing. I was what we call in Britain a bookworm. So I was always as a kid buried in a book. And I loved writing stories and telling stories at school. And actually, one of the sort of strategies I had when I'd arrive at these new schools was I would write plays, which I would direct, produce and occasionally star in as well, presumably if I was feeling particularly egomaniacal. But basically, unless people were nice to me, they didn't get good parts. Wow. So Now, I um, did that too, but only for my family, <laughs> only with my siblings. I never had the confidence to do it with classmates. That's brilliant. Um, I wish I'd known. So actually, I've always loved writing. And when it came to sort of choosing a career at university. And I initially wanted to be an experimental filmmaker, but then I realised that I did need to get a job to pay off my student debts. And being a journalist seemed very comfortably like being a student. You know, it's researching, interpreting, writing, synthesising information. And so for absolutely the wrong, rather casual reason, I ended up in what for me has been a fantastic career. 
But you studied art history. You don't have a journalism degree. Is that correct? No, I actually studied at Cambridge. You do a two-part degree. So I did law part one, thinking I'd be a what was then called a civil rights lawyer. It would now be called a human rights lawyer. And then realizing I really didn't want to be a lawyer at all. And so I did art and architectural history part two and then went into journalism. But I think in Britain, there are fewer vocational degrees, more now, but there are a few then. So um, it was this very sort of old-fashioned thinking that if you were sort of highly trained intellectually, then you could really apply yourself to anything. Now, I believe it was reading Domus magazine that gave you a sense about how design should be written about. Is that true? Yeah, that was really my first exposure to a sort of formal discipline called design. It was something that my parents had practiced in this very improvisational, instinctive, resourceful way. I mean, mum would have happily been described as being creative. My dad would have probably biffed me if I'd suggested he was such a thing, but he was incredibly creative. I mean, hugely skilled and talented. Um, But There was no discourse about design in Britain in the 1970s, but when I read art history, the course was really fuddy-duddy and traditional, so not particularly interesting. Um, But the art history library at Cambridge was phenomenal, so I spent most of my time there reading. And they had a subscription to Domus magazine, which was then edited by Alessandro Mendini, and he wrote about design, as I have always thought of it since, as this incredibly intellectually dynamic subject that was absolutely immersed in the sort of intersection of other disciplines, so film, psychology, politics, fashion, pop culture, and so on, all the things I was completely obsessed by at the time. So that was how I was introduced to design and how I've thought about it ever since. I think without that, had I been interested in design at all, which would have been less likely, it would have been much more of a struggle to see it like that. So I'm hugely grateful to him. After graduating from Cambridge, you were part of the graduate trainee journalism program at the Thompson Organization and then got a job as an editor of the British Ad World magazine campaign. Um, What did you make of the profession when you began working in it? Well, I was on the Times graduate training scheme because the Thompson Organization then owned the Times. And then I went to campaign, and which was very sort of contemporary and dynamic and lively and go ahead. And then in 1985, I went to the Financial Times. So that was my big break. I mean, in Britain, it was all about getting a job on what were called national daily newspapers. And I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. So I really had to work for the Financial Times because it was the only paper in Britain that had a sort of large number of foreign correspondents in lots of different places. It would have been much tougher elsewhere. And it was an overwhelmingly male profession. But then the corridors of power were overwhelmingly male. So that didn't really come as a shock. And you did realise early on that as a woman, you couldn't make any mistakes. You were judged very differently. I mean, I remember one senior editor at the FT telling myself and a close friend there, Lucy Kellaway, um, who went on to become a, a business columnist for them, that we were the first women the FT had employed on the same basis as men. In other words, we had good degrees from Oxford or Cambridge. You know, we'd had a couple of years of journalistic experience. Um, Instead of appointing us in some specialist role, um, we were sort of going into the mainstream of career development at the FT 
along with men of our generation. So the idea that this was unusual was really preposterous. But it was a paternalistic rather than a misogynistic organisation. And you really did have a sense that if you worked hard and did well, which meant, you know, going in every weekend to sort of you do your job on weekdays and then you knew you had to do something extra to really stand out and shine. But, I mean, for me, it was never a question as to whether I was going to do that. I always knew it would be worth it. How did you move from working as a foreign correspondent to working primarily as a writer about design? Well, I worked for the Financial Times for nearly 20 years. And so I wrote about politics, economics, corporate affairs. I was a foreign correspondent in Paris. Then I wrote about the creative industries, which I was really the only person on the paper who was obsessed by those subjects. I'd kind of been in long-term training with all the indie music magazines I'd, and style magazines I'd been reading for all those years. So the creative industries then were economically exploding and just starting to be taken seriously in terms of investment. So they needed someone to cover them. So it was actually sensible of them to deploy me. And it was great fun for me. But after nearly 20 years of general journalism, I decided I did want to focus on something I was really passionate about. And I chose design because I was passionate about it. I'd been introduced to it um, by Domus at Cambridge. I then read as much about it as I could. And actually, there was quite a sophisticated design culture in France when I was a foreign correspondent there in the early 90s. Uh, Centre Pompidou had a fantastic design collection. And particularly as a foreign correspondent, you're really sort of thrown into the deep end on a daily basis and expected to come to grips with a massive development, whether it's economic, political, cultural or whatever, analyse it and then, you know, describe the important implications of it and so on to the readers. So I was used to doing that in lots of different sectors and areas of life. And I've always felt that that not knowingly and strategically but instinctively has been my approach to design writing. I kind of treat it like being a foreign correspondent all over again. And I love the variety of having to immerse yourself in different fields because obviously design engages with everything. So if you're writing about it, you have to be prepared to do that. You became the architecture and design critic of the Financial Times in 2000. Were you the first architecture and design critic for the paper? No, the FT hadn't had a design critic before, but um, had had an architecture critic for many decades. But no design critic. You were the first. Yes. The first and then obviously the first woman. So it was um, quite a breakthrough. I'd never actually thought about it. Well... No, actually, the FT thought I was crazy to stop being on what was called the main paper and to want to reinvent myself as a cultural critic. So actually, it was probably much tougher to become a woman foreign correspondent, than, which is absolutely core to FT coverage. They'd always tended to be a bit more maverick in appointing cultural critics. Now, you say that you felt that design at that time was incredibly misunderstood. In what way? Well, in the same way it is now, in that it's routinely stereotyped as a styling discipline, you know, something that produces snazzy sneakers, overpriced hoodies, blinged up cell phones, and is all about surface appearance rather than substance. So how would you describe the discipline of the design? Well, for me, I mean, obviously, design is a complex and elusive discipline. It's meant many different things. 
different times and in different contexts, but I believe it's always had one elemental role, and that's as an agent of change that can help us to interpret changes of any type, whether they're social, economic, political, cultural, technological, scientific, ecological, to ensure that they affect us positively rather than negatively. While working at the Financial Times, you fostered a connection with the Design Museum, where you served as a trustee. Then in 2001, you became the museum's director. What was it like going from journalism to the realm of an art institution? Well, it was very interesting because I learned so many different skills. I mean, now I spend a lot of my time doing pro bono work in the arts. So I chair the board of trustees of two art galleries, Chisholm Hill Gallery in London, the Hepworth Wakefield in Yorkshire. I've been on the board of the Arts Council, which is the main national funding body, chaired Michael Clark Company, which is a dance group. And I'm on various other government advisory boards and committees. And um, so a lot of the skills I learned at the Design Museum, where I also learned a lot more about design and met some amazing people. But a lot of those skills, certainly the logistical and strategic skills, I've since used in my pro bono work, which is a hugely important part of my life and I enjoy immensely. In 2006, you left and became the first design critic for the International Herald Tribune since renamed the New York Times International Edition. Did any part of you want to go back to being what you dubbed a, quote, proper journalist? Uh, No, absolutely not. Actually, before I left the Design Museum, a friend, Stefano Tonki, who was then the editor of Tea Magazine at the New York Times, he'd just taken over and he wanted to make it more serious, had asked me to write an occasional column on design, which I was happy to do. So as soon as I left, he said, oh, I'm going to see the International Herald Tribune, which had just been acquired by the New York Times in Paris next week, and I'm going to tell them to hire you as their design critic. And I thought... Oh, lovely Stefano, I'll never hear anything about this again. And then, you know, eight days later, he calls and says, you know, they want you on the Eurostar tomorrow. So, I mean, I was incredibly lucky because I was the first design critic. I could really sort of make up the rules from the start. And it was an absolutely fantastic experience. The Herald Tribune was a great paper to work for. One of the things I'd really loved about the Financial Times was that it was internationalizing during the period I was there. So that was a big challenge to wrestle with. And so to sort of go back to that, I found really exciting. And all the senior editors said, you know, we've never covered design. We individually don't know anything about it, but we feel that we ought to. And so So they gave me a lot of freedom to write about it as I wished, which was very exciting. In 2008, you wrote what is one of the best explanations of design that I think I've ever read. In it, one can see how design's arguably greatest strength, its ubiquity within and across so many fields and applications, can also be perhaps its greatest weakness as it pertains to preventing people from fully understanding it. So my question is this, what is the key to getting people to understand design? And why do you think it is important that they do? Well, it's important that they do because we ignore design at our peril. I mean, you cannot disengage from design in every aspect of everything we do every single day. We are interacting with design and the quality of design, whether it's of an interior, 
a software system, a digital device or whatever, the quality of its design will affect us. It will affect our sense of well-being, whether we can fulfill our ambitions or not, or fail miserably, um, how confident and empowered we feel or otherwise. And so given that it exerts so much power in our lives and we can't ignore it, the better we understand it, the better off we're likely to be. And so I think once you explain that to people with practical examples of good and bad design, successful and unsuccessful, actually, because design is such an immersive, ingrained element in our lives, they actually understand it quite quickly. What are some good or bad examples that you could point to? Oh, gosh. I mean, the thing is, if something is intelligently and sensitively designed, it can bring delight, efficiency, empowerment, confidence, I mean, all those extraordinary things. Bad design does absolutely the opposite. It can be damaging or downright dangerous and destructive. So if you think of, say, a signage system, you know, that's a pretty ubiquitous example of design. But of course, if you look back historically, many of the great modernist design endeavours were in signage. So say, you think of the London Underground. It's a labyrinthine subterranean network of people who are basically rushing around, very worried they're going to miss their trains, not sure where they're going to go. If it wasn't for the signage, we'd all be lost in the network. Exactly the same applies to other artificial environments like airports. You know, how would you find your gate without signs? Whereas if you have a well-designed signage system, you don't get lost. But actually, you tend not to notice it because the signs will be clear and legible. They will be positioned in exactly the right places because there's designer will have anticipated when you're going to sort of be about to lose confidence in the course that you're walking in and when you're going to need the reassurance that you're going in the right direction or to be pointed in a different direction. And so the quality of design of that signage system basically determines whether or not you get lost, whether you feel hassled, irritated, confused, worried, panic-stricken or confident, efficient and powerful. How do you see the delineation between functionality and taste? Um, I'm not sure I see a delineation between them. I mean, functionality is absolutely essential to every aspect of design, whether it's a humanitarian design program to provide emergency shelter for asylum seekers who've just landed on the island of Lesbos in Greece, or whether it's a a cell phone, Um, whatever other qualities that those projects have, if they don't fulfill their respective functions efficiently, they cannot be considered to be good design. And taste is an entirely subjective issue. I mean, your or my taste, whether it's in colour, how something feels to the touch, um, its shape will be completely different. We may be naturally drawn to the same things for very different reasons. And obviously, societally, occasionally, there's a sort of coalescence around different tropes of taste, whether it's certain forms, certain colours, certain scales, and and so on. But taste remains an intensely subjective issue, and one that some people relate to entirely instinctively, and others in a much more systematic and analytical way. As I was doing my research on your work, I 
found a quote that reminded me of a very recent situation that I, I witnessed. So you stated, like a lot of design nuts, I find it deeply irritating that public perceptions of design should be dominated by a handful of badly designed, overpriced pieces of furniture. And I recently saw the Dieter Rams documentary that Gary Hustwit created. And in that film, there's a scene where Dieter Rams is walking through a display of various types of modern furniture and remarking on a number of pieces, what he likes, what he doesn't like. And then the camera pans very slowly up to a set of droog drawers, the drawers that are sort of all deconstructed and then held together by a big sort of almost like duct tape belt. And he talked about how much he loathed that piece of furniture and that how it was a complete abomination. And I was crestfallen, Alice, because I own that piece of furniture. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't believe that the centerpiece of my living room was now being completely demolished by DDMs. (laughs) And I wanted to know what you thought of that. Um, well, it's very characteristic of Dieter Ramps, who obviously was an incredible designer and also an incredible brain. I mean, I remember once driving him around London and he just fired me with questions about the politics of the city, particularly the politics of traffic management systems, which he was completely obsessed by. I mean, he's a highly intelligent, highly articulate man. I with, thought I was too. With a very focused and specific worldview. But the fact that he thought it's TJ Remy, I think, yes, who designed Remy. Um, yeah, yeah. the chest of drawers. Yes. The fact that he thought it was an abomination does not necessarily mean that the rest of the world should. But I that so that gets me back to how do you how do you help people understand what is good design if they don't have the education or if they're not privy to the way in which good design decisions are made? I was so struck by the way you talked about the need for good design in our culture and the and the need and and the prerequisite that we start our problem-solving through the lens of design when so few people really understand the purpose of design? Well, actually, I'm not sure that I think that's problematic. I mean, in theory, it ought to be. But I think that actually most people instinctively understand whether they think something is well-designed or not, whether they warm to it, whether it's useful to them, whether they feel guilty about it um, in terms of its environmental or ethical implications. And they may not articulate it quite like that, but I think that if design was more readily taught in schools and elementary schools, high schools and so on... I think we would produce a much more sort of design literate generation of citizens. But I'm not sure that that's essential in order for people to exercise intelligent design judgments. I mean, I do believe that the better informed people are about design, the more nuanced their choices are likely to be. But I believe that everyone makes design decisions, complex, subtle design decisions all the time. They don't necessarily interpret those decisions in that way. In 2014, you published a book titled Hello World. You collaborated with one of the greatest book designers in the world, Irma Boom. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Um, Well, it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I have adored 
Irma's books and admired them hugely for for many years. And I had a wonderful editor for Hello World, Simon Prosser. And when we were discussing the plans for the book, he said, oh, who's the greatest living book designer? And I said, no contest, Irma Boom. And he said, okay, well, in that case, she's got to design it. And I realised then how privileged I was to be working with Simon because I couldn't imagine any other publisher or editor being so determined and so ambitious in terms of um, the design quality of the book. So um, by that time, I knew Emma quite well, so I contacted her. And it was just wonderful to spend even more time with Emma when I was in Amsterdam. And also, you know, we would both tend to work crazy hours and over the weekend and so on. So we just sort of sort everything out between us. And by the time Hamish Hamilton, the publishers, had come back to work on Monday morning everything was set. Um, So it was nice being in a girl tag team with her, but we had no idea how she was going to design the book and what it was going to look like. And I feel if you work with a designer like Irma, then you shouldn't have any preconceptions. And the cover that she produced was so brilliant and so unexpected, but interestingly, completely polarising. I mean, because I've always written about design for a general readership journalistically, I've tried to do the same thing with my books. And so I do the rounds of the literary festival, the festivals of ideas, as well as specialist design events to talk about them in Britain. And so when I spoke at literary festivals, a perennial question at every single festival would come from someone who hated the design of the book. They thought it was ugly, acrid, and so on. And I re- I mean, I never said this because it would have been rude, but I just didn't care. I thought it was brilliant. I think it's magnificent. I think it's in the pantheon of one of her greatest designed books. Talk about the title. How did you come up with Hello World? Um, Well, I actually couldn't think what to call the book for a very long time. And Simon and I bounced around lots of ideas, but none of them were right. So we thought of sort of, you know, holding titles. I think it was on design, I think, um, Simon wanted. And I was actually here in New York. I was doing a talk at MoMA with Paola Antonelli. And she started talking about the Hello World program, which was one of the first test programs for all software developed by Dennis M. Ritchie, the brilliant software designer. And because it was a test program, he wanted to make it as simple as possible. So he decided that all it would do was spell out hello, comma, world, and that when those words appeared, then the programmer would know that the program had worked. And this was going to be exhibited in Design in the Elastic Mind, which was one of the many brilliant exhibitions that Paula has curated at MoMA and she was talking about it and I felt as though light bulbs must have sort of sparked on and off all around my head because I suddenly thought that is the title it's exactly what design does and luckily Simon agreed so that was the title. And it is really one of the iconic book covers of our time I, I believe you also write about Irma Boom in your brilliant new book Design as an Attitude. The title is a quote from the book Vision in Motion by one of your heroes, Lasley Maholi Naj. What motivated you to use that quote as the title of the book? Because I think it's the most brilliant sort of description of, of design that encompasses what's positive about design and also some of the negative factors that have impeded and constrained it and stereotyped it for so long. So he actually wrote in Vision in Motion, designing is an attitude, not a profession. So obviously he was Hungarian. English was a second 
language and to use designing. Um, you know, it just sounds so quaint to us now. Again, the book was going to be called something completely different. It was going to be a field guide to design. And I was giving a talk in Australia and they asked me for a title and I hadn't really thought about the... Um, content of the talk at that point, but I had been rereading Vision in Motion as part of the research for the book. So I called it Designers and Attitude. And as I was writing, I thought, God, I wish I'd called the book that. They immediately emailed the publisher and luckily he agreed to change the title. The book is brought to life through a fantastic array of real-world examples. It's really hard to choose just one to talk about. There's the Ocean Cleanup, the Migration Lab, Talking Hands, Amy Mullins, the Sihad Kahani, Female Doctors in Pakistan, Forensic Architecture, Peak Vision, and, and so much more. It's quite a remarkable range. Well, one of the reasons why I love writing about design is you always have a remarkable range and you can never, ever stand still. You're constantly having to reassess your thinking. So I like that sort of agility that it demands. It just makes it much more challenging, but also much more fun and enjoyable. And so it's a tribute to design that there's such an incredibly eclectic range of projects to write about and that so many people from often improbable or seemingly improbable fields are engaging with it. So you mentioned Sahat Kahani. That's actually a network of teleclinics to provide healthcare for women in Pakistan, which was co-founded by two women doctors, Sarah Karam and Ifat Safar, to specifically address the problem that there were too few female doctors in Pakistan to care for the large number of women who would prefer, for cultural reasons, not to be treated by men. So they came up um, with this concept of teleclinics where the doctors diagnose the patients online through live video links. The patients were accompanied by a local nurse, could be thousands of miles away in a little village, a town or a smaller city. And the reason why there are too few female doctors in Pakistan is that even though there are more women studying medicine at university and medical school than men, the problems arise when they graduate because they come under such acute pressure to marry, have children and stop work that that means there are far too few women doctors practicing. So it's an incredibly ingenious, super practical and effective solution to a really complex societal problem. And for me, very touching and exciting that these hugely accomplished women doctors are very happy to see it interpreted as a design project. You start the chapter, The Descent of Objects, with this quote by Roland Barthes. The essence of an object has something to do with the way it turns into trash. It is a great quote, isn't it's it? It's <laughs> fantastic. And as somebody who has spent many decades in the design of fast-moving consumer goods, it is where most of the work that I've done ends up in the trash. Talk about why the essence of an object has something to do with the way it turns into trash. Well, because if we look at the life cycle of a product in the sort of old school 20th century industrial design stereotype, the focus would tend to be on its development, the shipment, the process of consumption, the process of marketing it and its use, but also its afterlife has to be taken into account 
as well. And so I think it's wholly irresponsible of designers and manufacturers to develop anything if they don't arrange for it to be responsibly disposed of after the end of its useful working life. And if they don't do that, I think it leads to a sort of moral toxicity that haunts the product. I mean, one of my favourite contemporary design projects is an ongoing design research project by Andrea Tremarchi and Simone Farrison of Studio Forma Phantasma. It's called All Streams. And they are brilliant designers. You know, they've designed lights that are mass manufactured by Floss. They've done a series of politically engaged, highly polemical, conceptual design projects, often engaged in the refugee crisis in Europe and the history of migration and its cultural history on the continent. But All Streams looks specifically about the colossal, often illicit global trade in electronic and digital waste. And so they not only map the shipments because it's a really hidden, enigmatic trade and also a very crooked and criminalistic one. So they track shipments from country to country. They collaborated with other designers, manufacturers, recyclers, scientists, politicians, even Interpol, to assess the social, political and economic impact of the trade and also have made practical suggestions of the way that the design of digital devices can be amended to make them easier to recycle responsibly. And currently, I think fewer than a third of all the digital devices chucked away in the European Union every year are responsibly recycled. So that shows you the scale of the problem. Most of the others end up in toxic hellhole landfill sites. You've detailed how design was originally something utilized to better people's lives, such as cave dwellers barricading themselves off from predators. Uh, During the Industrial Revolution, design was given a name and directed towards commercial ends. In Hello World, you write about how design was returning to its roots. And now at the end of the chapter, Choices, Choices, Choices in Design as an Attitude, you write about how some designers are still working in traditional ways, but others are redefining their roles to help people make their own design decisions rather than those people making decisions on our behalf mostly because making the right decisions will be more important than ever. And you pose a question I'd like to ask you. If more and more people engage with design, where will this leave designers? Well, one place that it will leave designers is that increasingly their roles will be around helping those people to engage with design in an intelligent and constructive way. So it will be enabling people to engage with design rather than giving them a sort of finished outcome that they have controlled. So I think that will be, it already is, a significant shift in design. You know, there are all sorts of areas of our lives where you have seen the abdication of control, whether it's the sort of app revolution, which, you know, I think it was maybe seven or eight years ago, I mean, maybe more, where suddenly hundreds of apps were being developed and launched, I mean, often by DIY developers sort of operating from home, which had a profound impact on the way we use digital devices, you know, for better and for worse of course. So I think there are all sorts of areas where control is already being 
abdicated, but it does raise important issues about, you know, the level of freedom that people want to have to choose and also the role that designers have in sort of editing that. I mean, I a year ago, I visited Nike in Portland, Oregon, and I love Nike ID. So, you know, I waste tons of money by badly customizing um, the sneakers myself. So I was very interested as to whether they saw it as problematic that, you know, it still has the swish on. And so people self-designing color clashing, weird forms, um, bizarre variable versions on Nike ID. So how do they stop it being detrimental to the brand? Because it's not obvious to the naked eye, whether it's an official Nike designed sneaker or a Nike ID one. And the senior designers said that they do regulate and restrict the palette. I mean, in obviously highly controlled ways. And so even something like that, which is supposedly about self-expression, free choice, customization, individuality, actually has been designed in quite a rigorous way to protect that swoosh and its credibility. As I think they would put it, the iconic assets of the brand. (laughs) (laughs) Alice, you're quite active on Instagram, and you've said this about your engagement with it. My aim was to use it to try and convince people to see design as I see it, not as a stereotypical styling device, but as this incredibly dynamic agent for change that has the potential to affect our lives in all sorts of different ways. So I really write it for people outside the design community to deliver that message, hopefully in a fun way. So Alice, do you approach writing about design and curating design in different ways? Or do you feel like it's sort of all variations on this theme of being able to speak to the world about design in a way that gets them to really understand its power? Well, with Instagram, I decided that I was going to approach it as a project. So my initial idea was just to post about some interesting aspect of design every day. And so I began by doing that. And that was fine. But after a few weeks, I realized I was actually spending more time deciding on, you know, the sequence of projects, because I didn't want the sort of juxtaposition between one day and the other, the next one to be too bizarre. And so I was getting completely tangled up in that and wasting a lot of time. And I realized it would be much easier to pick a weekly theme and post about seven different design interpretations interpretations of that theme. And also that was a much more effective way of communicating the eclecticism of design and the diversity of roles that design can play in our lives in a much more efficient but seemingly casual and enjoyable way. Alice, my last question is this. Design as an attitude illuminates the sheer amount of fields that design touches today. That coupled with the professional world's belated, but thank God some companies got their embrace of the field, has seemingly made it a great time for designers. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about why we have reason for optimism as it pertains to the to the discipline today. Well, I think if you look at all the fields that now engage with design, it's proof that 
people are taking design much more seriously and they're readier to see it as an agent of change that can affect our lives in so many different areas and also as a very powerful or potentially powerful force in our lives that they ignore at their peril. And so when I was writing about design in this guise 15, 10, five years ago, there were always examples to choose, but you were scrabbling around to find them. And certainly doctors like Sarah Karam and Ifat Safar would not have so readily described themselves as designers. But now we're spoilt for choice. And I think that there has been this explosion of instinctive ingenuity in design and also a transformation of the practice and possibilities of design because of very basic, relatively inexpensive of rather boringly familiar digital tools, which have affected many areas of our lives, but collectively in design have proved transformational. So they've enabled designers to operate independently, to set their own agendas, to pursue their own social, political, environmental or entrepreneurial objectives. So I'm talking about things like crowdfunding that enables designers to fund the development of projects. So an extreme example would be the Ocean Cleanup Array, which aims to clear plastic trash from the oceans. The Dutch design engineering student who founded that project four years ago raised over $30 million. So that was largely from crowdfunding, but also grants and donations. So when scientists criticised his plans saying they wouldn't work, and environmentalists said they risked damaging marine life, I'm not saying it didn't matter because those threats may yet turn out to be true. But because he'd raised so much money, he wasn't answerable to anyone, so he could continue with the project. So this amazingly ambitious, epic design endeavour went live in the Pacific in September. I have no idea whether it's going to work work. It's too soon to tell, but it's extraordinary that that happened. And when you have social designers redesigning social services and the welfare state, when you see the sort of level of activity of designers in Europe in engaging with the refugee crisis, whether it's providing emergency shelter or developing new ways of helping asylum seekers and migrants engage with their new local communities, I find it hugely inspiring and moving. So I think that we're living at a time where designers are given the opportunity to experiment in all these different fields. So if this explosion of instinctive design ingenuity, the sort of attitudinal designers I talk about in the book, if it's all pointless, if it doesn't work, then it's going to be much, much, much more difficult for people to execute those projects in future. If it succeeds, it's going to be much easier. And I honestly believe that we'll all be better off. I do too. Alice Rothsorn, thank you so much for illuminating the world about the possibilities of design. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Oh, well, thank you, Debbie. Alice Rothsorn's latest book is titled Design as an Attitude. You can find out more about Alice, her articles, and her books on her website, alicerothsorn.com. And you can follow her wonderful Instagram feed at alice.rothsorn. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. 
If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. 